Humble yourselves, Peter tells us, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So often we, uh, we quote that uh, incorrectly, if not in words, at least in uh, attitude, that we ask God to humble us and then we exalt ourselves. God says, you humble yourself and he will exalt us. That's true individually and that's true of a church. And so this evening at 645, we will be praying, humbling ourselves, confessing sin, praying for relationships, praying that God would give us direction uh, for ministry in our lives individually and our lives as a church. Father's Day. Heard about a father who said, worked for 30 years, saved, scrimped, sacrificed, because I wanted my children to have what I never had. A father up to his eyeballs in debt. How many of you can sympathize well with that father? Well, I do not know what, uh, what sort of situation you had in your life in regard to father, what that word means when you hear it. Uh, it is always interpreted initially psychologically before it is interpreted logically or theologically. We interpret it psychologically because we interpret Father, that word when it's spoken creates within us certain feelings that were generated by our Father or by the absence of a Father. I happen to have had a wonderful Father, Charlie Fanning. In fact, I spent... uh, much of my life calling him Charlie. It all started when I was in the cradle roll or had to go to the nursery at the First Baptist Church in Dallas. And my mother was teaching a Sunday school class. And so my dad would take uh, me to the cradle roll, as we used to call it. And uh, so he'd leave me there and start to leave. And I wouldn't let him leave. I'd start calling out, Charlie, Charlie. So he'd have to come back and stay. So he stayed all through three or four years while I was there and then three or four more uh, while my brother was there. And I think Charlie Fanning may have been the first male adult worker to serve in a a nursery and a cradle roll in the Baptist church. Charlie Fanning was a remarkable and wonderful man and he gave me many things Frankly, I don't remember a lot of them. I grew up in the Depression, like many of you. I never knew we were in a Depression. I look back on it now and can see sacrifices uh, that were being made and difficulties that were being faced uh, by my parents, as you can with yours, or possibly in your own life, old enough to have felt that uh, more than I did. Uh, I don't remember a lot of the things that my father gave me. I remember a few. And looking back on it, it is a very tender experience for me because I realized what was behind the story. 
Uh, my dad had played football at Bailey University and had been on the athletic council there. And one year for Christmas, what I received for a gift was a football that had been used in a Baylor football game in Waco. I mean, not a store-bought football, not one you got new down at the sporting goods store, but I mean a real live, thoroughbred, bonafide football that had been used by real players. It was the prize of my life and of the neighborhoods. We played with that that football until the, the ends would start peeling back. Do you remember those footballs they made in and would put tape on it? I'd give anything in the world if I still had that football. And I realize now that the reason my father got that gift for me was because he probably didn't have enough money to buy me something. And because of his association with Baylor, they gave him that football. It was symbolic of what Charlie Fanning gave to me. In a word, I knew that I was loved. I was disciplined. I was corrected. I was encouraged. All of those facets going together made me know and have never doubted the fact that I was loved by my father. And I only wish that I had the opportunity, maybe he's listening, hope so. I only wish I had the opportunity to express to him. I, I tried to in the latter years of his life, but it's kind of clumsy at times and, and difficult and the words don't seem to come out the way uh, that you want them to. But I, I would love to say to him, Charlie, I love you, and I love you for all that you did for me and for all you meant to our family, and I still miss you. Well, I hope he's hearing that. But I've come to the conclusion that parental love is not so much to be returned as it is to be passed on, to be passed on to your children, to my children, to our children. Because it is so imperative, it is so important that children know the love of a father or of a surrogate father, a substitute father, or someone who becomes that father role in their heart and in their life. Some of you have heard me tell about going to speak to a group of boys uh, who were there. They were dependent, neglected teenagers. They were 10, 12, 13 years of age. And some of these kids had been in trouble. Uh, many of them in trouble because their parents were in trouble in one way or another or in many ways. And I went there for a, a so-called Bible study. What it really was, we just sit around on the floor and talk about anything they wanted to talk about. They just kind of looked at me to get it started. And so I started talking about God loving us, God being a loving heavenly father, uh, because that came very natural to me, understanding that my father was the kind of person he was to learn later on that God was a loving father. It was easy for me to make the transition from Charlie Fanning to the living God because I realized the love of an earthly father. It was not difficult for me 
to realize the love of a heavenly father. But some of those kids hadn't had that experience. A lot of people have not had that experience. A number of you in this room have not had that experience. The word father to you may generate fear or anger. Regret. But whatever it is, God has come to reveal to us ultimately and completely the nature of our loving Heavenly Father. I was trying to say that to these boys. And this young kid, 12 or 13 years of old, years of age, said, If God is a father like my old man, I don't want to know the SOB. And he didn't use the initials. He said, he beat my mother. He beat me. He made life miserable for us. And that's why I ran away. So if God's like that, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And I said, if God's like that, I don't want to have anything to do with him either. So let's talk about what God is like. When Jesus came and said, Matthew 10, 22, and elsewhere in the scripture, that he had come to reveal the Father. He has come to reveal the Father, what the Father is really like. Because you see, the Jews had an inadequate interpretation of Father. They didn't look upon father as an intimate personal relationship. That was not the Old Testament concept of father. The Old Testament concept of father was like we in America still describe George Washington as the father of the United States, the father of our country. Well, that's, that's a general, a generic kind of term that he was one of the founding fathers of America. And we talk about the founding fathers. I didn't know any of them, never met any of them. They were not father to me. And the Jews had that concept of the fatherhood of God, that he was impersonal, that he was detached, and that he was primarily committed to judgment. And one reason that interpretation was uh, paramount in Jesus' day was because of the interpretation the Pharisees put upon the nature and the character of God. God is basically angry with you. And if you want to get on his good side, you have got to do this and do this and do this. You've got to obey this rule and this regulation. And you've got to stop doing this and doing this. So they came up with over 600 laws, 613 to be exact, 613 laws, most of them negative, a few of them positive, less than half of them positive, about what you had to do if you had any chance of knowing God and being made right with God. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to reveal to you what the Father is really like. And so in his inaugural presentation of his ministry, in the what is called the Nazareth Manifesto, fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, early now, Notice this, early in the ministry of Jesus, very early, 
He's been through the temptations in the wilderness. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He has made his way back to Nazareth. And he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it says he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus made it a practice of going to church as his custom. Even though it was not all that he knew it ought to be or could be, he was part of it. He did not detach himself from it. Even though he knew the inadequacies of what was being interpreted and communicated, he came, he said, to reveal what God is like, what the Father is like. And so listen to what he says. He got up. They handed him the scripture that was to be read that day. It was predictable. The scripture was predictable as to what was to be read on each Sabbath day. This happened to be the Sabbath that this passage of scripture from Isaiah 61 was the passage of scripture that Jesus read. Now, I do not believe it was accidental. You see, he being the author of the scripture, all of the plan of God, I believe, was worked out by perfect timing and that his arrival at Nazareth for his inaugural address, his proclamation of the Christian manifesto, the Nazareth manifesto, fell on the day when they read this passage of scripture. And it is very, very revealing. Let me read it to you. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. This is from Isaiah. Hundreds of years earlier prophesied and written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to proclaim this is the Lord's time. This is the Lord's year. This is when God begins to fully reveal his nature and character through his son. And he closed the book and sat down and said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. This is what God is like. And he has sent me to bring this message. I am here because God wants through me, through the message of his love, his unconditional love and grace, he wants me to proclaim to you that you captives are to be released. Whatever the captivity may be, it may be mental, it may be physical, it may be relational, it may be emotional. If you are held captive by ideas, held captive by fears, held, capt held captive by addictions, physical, mental, or otherwise. He has come to say, I am your deliverer. I have come to release you who are captives and recovery of sight to the blind. You can't find your way. You don't know which direction to go. You're confused about decisions that need to be made this week or next week or next month as we all are facing a future of decision-making. 
He has said that he has come to give us recovery of sight into ourselves, into God, into God's plan for our lives. He has come to remove the scales of provincialism from our eyes and help us see a whole new kingdom and a whole new cause and a whole new opportunity and a whole new world and a whole new definition of who God is and what he is like. He has also come to set free those who are downtrodden. Now, I don't have any doubt but that there's a lot of folks here today who because of the vicissitudes and exigencies of life feel like you've been walked all over. In many instances, not through any fault of your own. World, the world and the life we live and the world in which we live gets us down sometimes. And you may be down today. Well, Jesus Christ has come to lift you up. Jesus Christ has come to get us on our feet. Jesus Christ has come to put a new spring in our step and a new sparkle in our eye and a new spirit in our living If you're down, he's come to lift you up. And when you get down, remember, he has come to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what we're here to do. That's what we as a church are here to do. That's what Jesus came to do. This is what he came to do. This was his ministry. Now, it is very, 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 very important that you hear this next word. Jesus broke off the reading of that scripture right in the middle of a sentence. If you look it up in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you will see that Jesus intentionally dropped the next phrase, didn't quote it. And the next phrase is this, that he has come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of judgment of our God. Jesus edited that out. No period, no comma. The day of vengeance of our Lord, he did not come to proclaim the day of vengeance, the day of judgment. Now judgment will come. And refers to it later, but that's not what he has come to do because ultimately judgment, judgment is determined by our personal response to this loving revelation of a God who gives us unconditional grace and salvation. And so it is not God's judgment upon us, but our judgment upon ourselves that is the reciprocal reaction to our rejection of his love and grace. As I said a few Sundays ago, we are not punished so much for our sins as we are by our sins. The judgment is not God saying, I'm going to judge you because you have rejected my son who has come as the epitome and essence of love. I'm not going to judge you. You judge yourself by denying yourself. 
knowledge of, experience with, and the presence of in your life, this encompassing love of God. The judgment is not something God imposes upon us. Judgment is something we impose upon ourselves by our response to or our lack of response to the loving and living God. So here is what Jesus has come to do. Therefore, this is what we are to be doing. If this is what God's intention is, God's purpose is, God's message is, if this is what Jesus came not only to say, but to practice, isn't that what we as Christians and as a church are to be saying and practicing? Are we not to be saying to a community, the community in which we live, the world in which we live, you can be released from the captivity of doubt and fear and unbelief. The shackles and manacles of fear can fall from your heart. You can be released. You can be set free. For the Bible says, if the Son therefore sets you free, you will be free indeed. And there is really no freedom apart from the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, revealing God's purpose to set us free, to liberate us from the penalty of our own sin and the consequences of our disobedience. Release. What are we here to say to San Antonio? God has come to forgive us. God loves you. He wants to set you free from whatever it may be that is binding you, shackling you, manacling you. You can be released. That's why we preach what we preach, teach what we teach, practice what we endeavor to practice in the multifaceted ministries of this church. That's what our counseling ministry is involved in. That's what all of us who are involved in counseling talk about. God can set you free today. That's what Jesus came to say, and that's what he tells us to say. Release, recovery of sight. People who've lost their way, people who are stumbling along, people who are trying to find some meaning to life. Listen, let's tell you about Jesus. Let's tell you about a Father, God, who loves you and has revealed it and personalized it and epitomized it in his Son, Jesus Christ. Recovery of sight. You'll see life in a new way. You'll see yourself in a new way because you see God in a new way. And when you do, you'll see the world in a new way. you see the world as people searching for light. Jesus saw a great crowd one day and it says he was moved with compassion. Most of us, when we see a great crowd, are moved with excitement. It's exhilarating. Jesus said when he saw a great crowd... He was moved with compassion. Why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Look at the world in which we live. Look at the people you know. Look at our city. Sheep without shepherds. No sight, no direction, no meaning, no purpose. That's what Jesus came to do. 
and the baton of ministry has been passed to us to set free those who are downtrodden, to find liberty and freedom through Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do, and that's what he did in his ministry. And that's what we're to do in our ministry. And we are to proclaim today is the day. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. Now is the time. That's why we say it from this pulpit. That's why we say it in Bible study. That's why we say it in the ministries of this church. When is the time to accept the Lord? Now's the time to accept the Lord. When, it is, when is it the right time to do the right thing? Right now. Right now. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the acceptable time. You're acceptable. This is the time to be accepted. Accept your acceptance. Accept the fact that you are accepted in the Lord. So this is what Jesus said he came to do, and then he makes it very clear that this is what he wants us to do. Toward the end of his ministry, he told a parable, a little story. It's recorded in the latter chapters of the book of Matthew, the 25th chapter. Here we read what Jesus has sent us to do. Luke 4, we read Jesus saying, this is what the Father has sent me to do. And then he said to his followers, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And here is what we as individuals and as a church are to be doing. 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Beginning in the 31st verse, we read about judgment. Jesus not, did not mention the word in Nazareth. He did not mention the word at the beginning of his ministry. But here he does at the end of his ministry. Because judgment is directly related to our response to Jesus Christ and our willingness, our unwillingness to let him work and minister through us. This is what you and I will be judged by. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will come and say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Think of that. From the beginning of time prepared for us who accept this message and messenger of grace from the beginning of time. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then these people, the righteous, the folks 
that have been saved by the grace of God, they say, well, when did we do all of this? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Uh, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we do all of that? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, my brothers, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he said to those on his left hand, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't care about me. And he will say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I think it's very clear Jesus is saying if we take him seriously as our Savior, as our Redeemer, the one who releases us and recovers us and restores us, that he expects us to go about being his witnesses, his workers, his servants in the world, individually and collectively, as evidence of the fact that we do know and have now experienced this incomparable grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I personally think that he means we're to do this not only spiritually but physically as well. Now, there are those who would like to spiritualize everything and avoid the responsibility to take care of those who are physically hungry. You say, well, he's talking about those who are spiritually hungry. Certainly he is. But look back at his ministry. He fed those who were physically hungry and he fed those that were spiritually hungry. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 one time, 4,000 another because they were physically hungry. Jesus cared about people who were hungry and he expects his church to care about people's physical needs. There are those who want to separate the spiritual from the intellectual, the mental. They think it's somehow, if you're studious and learned, that somehow that diminishes faith and reduces your commitment. I don't believe that at all. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Irving Stone in his great book, Agony and Ecstasy, about Michelangelo he put some words into Michelangelo's mouth when he's talking, Michelangelo's addressing the Pope, and he said, ask a question. He said, do I have to murder my mind to save my soul? No, we do not have to murder our minds to save our souls. We have to let our minds be saturated with this same love and grace that God has given us to cleanse our souls and forgive us 
He wants to change our way of thinking. He wants to change our attitudes. He wants to change our desires and consequently to alter our actions. He's concerned about people who are physically hungry and spiritually hungry, people who are physically naked and those who are spiritually naked, who've been stripped of all self-confidence, stripped of all hope, Stripped of all joy. Nothing. There are people that need clothes. And there are people that need to be clothed in the Lord. The naked. People who are in prison. You don't have to be in Barry County Jail to be in prison. Man doesn't have to be behind bars to be prison in prison. He can be imprisoned by passions, by hatreds, by prejudices, by fear. So we need to visit those and help those who are sick and in prison. There's some people who are sick of soul, sick of spirit. Surely they need to be healed. Certainly they need to be helped. The great physician has come to do that. But he's also come to minister to those who are physically sick, mentally sick, whose families are sick. We are here to translate the gospel into everyday, down-to-earth practicalities. We cannot separate the spiritual from the material. We just get it. Get it. Let me pray that we'll hear it today. Do you know how you and I serve God? We serve God by serving others. That's the only way. The only way I can serve God is by serving other people. How can I serve God anything? What does he need? What does God need? What does he want? He wants us to serve other people because he's blessed us. That's the only way we serve God, by serving others. And if we don't do that, this 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew gets my attention, and I pray it will get the attention of our church in an increasing way. If we don't do what Jesus said, we're going to end up on the left hand. Making a difference how religious we may be, how sincere we may be. But if our spiritual life does not translate itself into the everyday practical aspects of living, we're on the left hand. And he says, we'll be separated from him forever. I'll tell you my favorite story. I learned it at home when I was a child. I don't know who first told it to me, my mother, my father, Sunday school teacher, or heard Dr. Truitt, I don't know, but I've told it before, and it says in a little story what I'd like to conclude with, and it's a story about two pools, two lakes that sat side by side up on a, these two lakes sat up on a high mountain plateau, and one day one little pool turned to the other little pool and said, you know, I'm tired of living and luxuriating up here on the top of the mountain. 
I'm tired of being the king of the mountain. I'm tired of being on the top. I want to do something. And the other pool said, you've gone crazy. You've gone to all of these seminars and bought those books and done everything in the world to get to the top. And you're finally here. And you want to throw it all away. You've lost it, man. You've lost it. Said, no, no, I haven't found it yet. I really want to find some way to try to serve. The other pool that had it made said, well, you can do whatever you want to. I'm staying here. But the little pool that was determined to serve found an outlet down into the valley. And let me say parenthetically, anybody that really wants to serve will find an outlet into the valley. If you really want to do something, you'll do it. You'll do it. And this little pool pool started rolling down the side of the mountain. He started grinding corn. He started irrigating dry land. He started quenching the thirst of tired people. Boy, he was having an exhilarating time giving himself away. And then he got to the bottom of the valley and he took an inventory of himself. And there wasn't much left. He looked back up on that mountainside. He'd expended a lot of himself on the side of that hill coming down. But to his surprise, down in the bottom of the valley, he met a lot of other little streams just like himself. And so these little streams got together. And together, they did more than any of them individually could ever have done. They became a huge river. Church. And they carried huge ships of commerce out to sea. Fantastic. But when this little pool passed out into the ocean, he shed a briny tear or two because he felt like, I've lost my individuality, my identity. I've been swallowed up in the whole of things. But he was amazingly happy. And then a miracle took place. The sun, shining very brightly, reached down and lifted that little pool up in the form of a cloud. And the wind blew that cloud back over his former residence. And there, the floodgates opened, and he returned home. Revitalized, refreshed, overflowing, starting back down the mountain again. He was ecstatic. Couldn't believe it. More of him than when he'd left. More to give than he'd first given. And he turned to speak to his former friend, the king of the mountain, the guy who had it made, the fellow at the top. And you already know what had happened. That's what Jesus was talking about in the 25th chapter of Matthew. The same son that had brought him home had dried up the other little poo. Jesus said it succinctly. He that finds his life 
will lose it. He that loses his life for my sake and the gospels, sharing the good news, will find it. You want life? Give it away to Jesus. Start this morning by trusting him. Start today by joining his church. A lot of little pools here, little streams here. And together, we can be a great river of ministry and service in this community. But we need everybody. We need you. A little stream from here and a little stream from here and one here, one there. Wherever you're coming from makes no difference. Come be a part of the fellowship of the committed. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and let's sing.